The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has a new service that could help defend agencies from cyber attacks. It's called the Protective Domain Name System Service. It helps steer federal applications and devices away from malicious web traffic. For details, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with CISA's lead architect for Protective DNS, Bronco Bocan. DNS is frequently referred to as the phone book of, of the Internet. So if you think of all the domain names that we as humans are used to dealing with, such as www.cisa.gov or www.whitehouse.gov, computers, on the other hand, uh, don't really understand these human understandable uh, domain names. Computers work much better with numbers. DNS uh, basically serves as a translation service that translates these human readable domain names to computer readable IP addresses in a nutshell. So any computer communication today, whether you're going to a website or your computer is trying to download the latest updates or your, your phone is trying to get the update from a social social media network, every single one of those sessions, internet sessions starts with a DNS uh, resolution where your computer needs to go somewhere to the internet and translate that human readable domain name to something that computers can work with. So protected DNS in a nutshell is a service that sits somewhere outside. We refer to it as upstream from federal computer networks and captures all these requests for translation and translates all the domain names on behalf of federal agencies. Got it. And from a cybersecurity perspective, how does this new service help defend federal agency networks? There is some research that shows that more than 90% of all cyber incidents or cyber relevant events that we've observed has the DNS in the chain somewhere along the chain of that cyber incident, along the, the life cycle of that cyber incident. Uh, DNS resolution has to take place somewhere, if not at multiple times during that cyber incident. And some other research also shows that that more than more than two thirds of all cybersecurity incidents could be prevented if we could intercept these DNS requests for known malicious destinations, destinations that are known to serve malicious content. If we could intercept them and block those requests before they take place. And this is really what protected DNS does. Protected DNS sits between federal agencies in this case and the rest of the internet and resolves these requests on behalf of federal agencies. We use commercial threat intelligence feeds. Basically, those are uh, uh, feeds that contain known indicators, known malicious domains, known malicious IP addresses that are preloaded into protected DNS. And when a uh, request is made to a malicious destination, we are able to detect that request before it is resolved and block it in, in place. And that is really the, the, the role of CISA's protective DNS, to proactively protect uh, federal agencies from uh, accessing known malicious destinations. As a side effect, because we are now uh, serving all these DNS requests for all federal agencies, uh, and we are logging all these requests and storing them in, in, in a, what we call a data lake. Now we have access to, uh, to a huge amount of data that allow us to go back and determine once we, uh, we have indicators that we know uh, are pointing to malicious, uh, malicious domains, so malicious sites, sites that are hosting malicious content, we can go back and we can do analysis after the incident, after the fact, analysis to determine whether there were uh, malicious activity taking place before we even knew 
uh, about these malicious indicators. And finally, we can also now analyze this, this huge amount of data uh, and look for, for trends for, and try to make future predictions and block malicious events even before they happen. Got it. So I understand you have been beta testing this service and now you're scaling it up across the federal civilian executive branch. You know, how does this scale and really operationalize, get operationalized across the federal government? Yeah. So when you think about the federal enterprise, we are the biggest enterprise in the world and scaling is is one of the big, big concerns. And therefore, when we designed, originally designed the service, we designed it in, in mind of, of the need to scale it, to, to serve the biggest enterprise. And our goal, and our uh, we would really like to be able to offer this service, not just to the federal enterprise, not just to, to federal civilian executive branch agencies, but to other levels of, of US governments that might be interested in same, same type of protection. So scaling and being able to, to serve uh, a really, really large amount of internet uh, or DNS requests uh, was one of the uh, the prerequisites for this service. So for that reason, when we uh, selected the provider for this service, we we wanted to make sure that the provider is also capable of serving uh, serving a large amount and large number of requests. And for that very reason, the provider that actually provides the resolution services is one of the biggest DNS uh, service providers in the world. We have presence in more than 90 countries. There are more than 300 data centers across the world. So this is a very reliable, very distributed, uh, high availability service that also is capable of scaling and supporting a very large number of organizations with a very large number of users. And we are already experiencing that. We are already seeing uh, uh, numbers of DNS queries that are in billions would be. Wow, that really gives you a sense of the scale at hand here. And how do you see this coming together on an agency by agency basis? You know, are, are, were some already using these types of services, procuring these types of services on their own, and now they have to kind of shift to this shared service? The beauty of protected DNS uh, service, CISA's protected DNS service, is that it sits outside of agency networks. It sits, sits, as I already mentioned, upstream from agency networks and protects those networks, regardless of what type of protections they already have in place on their internal network. So we are not interfering. There is no need to, to stop any of the existing contracts. There is no need to replace any of the existing technologies. It is just a matter of pointing all the agency traffic and routing it instead of to public internet, routing it to CISA's protective DNS. The, the service itself, the idea of protective DNS is not new. CISA has been operating a capability known as E3A DNS sinkhole for the past, I believe, nine years. Uh, and the, the, the idea behind this service was very similar, except that this service was limited to what we call agency on-premises networks. And it was also limited in terms of the type of indicators that we were using to those that are proprietary to CISA and our partners. What we are doing with Protected DNS, we are now expanding this service beyond on-premises networks because a lot of things have changed in the last 10 years, right? A lot of technologies, federal technologies are no longer behind those on-premises networks behind firewalls. They're now all over the internet in the cloud, but also we see a large number of what we call roaming and nomadic devices and mobile devices that uh, federal users, both employees and contractors are using to access federal resources. The old service was was limited and was not able to support the services with new protected DNS. We are now able to protect all federal devices in networks, regardless of whether they reside on premises 
or off-premises. And we are also introducing this new concept of commercial and open source threat intelligence feeds. So not only that we are now using our own proprietary, when I say our own, I mean us, CISA and our partners, indicators that we come up with through our own research, we are also feeding commercial uh, threat intelligence feeds into this service and expanding our protection capabilities. All right. Well, are there any goals or milestones here over the next year that you can share with us now that the protective DNS service is out there and available to the entire civilian executive branch? Absolutely. We are working really, really hard to onboard all federal civilian executive branch agencies. Our goal is to migrate all of those agencies from the current E3A DNS sinkhole capability first, uh, then expand as I already mentioned, we this new service supports roaming nomadic mobile devices. It supports cloud instances. Uh, it supports new SASE solutions. So agencies that are using SASE solutions and commercial SASE solutions as their backbone can now easily, uh, as a matter of just changing a few configuration settings, uh, route their DNS traffic to protect the DNS and then immediately satisfy not only requirements to, to route their traffic to protect the DNS, but also satisfy some of the requirements for the fed- from the federal zero trust strategy. So those are some of the, the immediate steps for the federal civilian executive branch. And as I already mentioned, we are also looking, we would be very interested and very happy to offer this service in the same level of protection that we now offer to federal agencies, to other levels of U.S. governments and other just beyond government, any interested party. Uh, that's something that we are not able to do right now, but we will be very interested, very, very happy to do so. Bronco Bocan is the lead architect for the Protective DNS Service at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action, and he took that to 
art, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. 
Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper sticker sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere. 
but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.